0: Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talked to Marcus Daniel, who is a pro doubles tennis player. Uh, And he's really good at it too. He's represented his country of New Zealand in the Olympics and the Davis Cup. He's won five uh, ATP titles and he's reached the quarterfinals of Wimbledon and the Australian Open. Um, Marcus has also been involved in the effective altruism movement since about 2015, and he's pledged to donate at least 10% of his annual winnings to effective charities for the rest of his life. Uh, in November 2020, he founded High Impact Athletes, which is a non-profit organisation connecting athletes and their supporters with the most effective, evidence-based nonprofits in the world. Part of the motivation there is that top athletes are often big earners, um, but ideas about effective giving haven't yet really taken hold in the world of pro sport at all. So it looks like there's an opportunity here for diverting a lot of money to some especially good causes. But Marcus is also hoping to take advantage of the massive public platforms that so many pro athletes have through like the press and social media um, to share ideas about effective giving with a much larger and much more general audience than typically gets to hear them. Altogether, it's an awesome idea, and it's the reason we wanted to get Marcus on the show. So, in the first half of the episode, we chat about Marcus's reasons for starting High Impact Athletes and his plans for taking it forwards. Yeah, so High Impact Athletes' situation is really interesting because uh, even when athletes want to get involved with philanthropy, they're often being approached by more than one charitable organisation And many of those orgs are far better known than the ones that HIA recommends. So yeah, Marcus is trying to crack a fairly crucial and under-discussed problem here, um, which is, what is the best way to pitch EA ideas to a wider, as in less academic, audience? And as EA grows, I feel like that's only going to become a more important question to answer. Um, So we spend a bunch of time chatting about that. And then in the second half, we just talk about sport in general, which I really enjoyed. We ask about some of the less well-known challenges of being a pro-athlete, uh, what unusual psychological traits top athletes have in common, and how sport spectating sometimes resembles organised religion. And Marcus came up with a uh, ingenious reason for thinking that the Olympics could reduce existential risk, so stay tuned for that. Uh, I should note there are chapter markers to jump to specific questions as always, if you're able to use them. And without further ado, we started by asking Marcus about what he was up to at the time of recording as he prepared for the Australian Open. Brief intro,
1: I'm Marcus Daniel, I'm a professional tennis player from New Zealand, uh, playing solely doubles now on the ATP World Tour, and I'm also the founder and CEO of High Impact Athletes. And in terms of the way tennis players have been preparing themselves uh, here in Australia, it's been a, a real mix because there are a few of us who are in the hard lockdown, uh, which is you know two weeks literally locked into a hotel room. So those of us who are doing that are going a little insane and doing whatever we possibly can to try and stay fit, um, you know, hitting tennis balls against the wall, against a mattress leaning up against the wall. Um, push-ups sit-ups all of the all of the stuff that you do when you're in an enclosed space and then we're watching our opponents walk out and have five hours of training uh, in each day to to go and hit some tennis balls do some gym and that sort of stuff so yeah it's a bit of a mix Um, but you know we're in Australia we're in Melbourne who went through absolute hell to get to a COVID-free place
0: and they're not taking any chances with it so um, it's understandable as well. Yeah, understandable, maybe, but that sounds pretty brutal for you. Um, Yeah, let's talk about high impact athletes then. And maybe the story of how this thing came about really begins with you getting into effective altruism uh, in general. So can you say something about how that came about? And was there anything in this set of ideas that really spoke to you and motivated you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So uh, my first encounter with effective altruism
1: came in 2015, I believe. And 2015 was the first year in my tennis career where I actually made money at the end of the year, where where I ended the year in the black. And so I had a little bit of money that I had put away in a bank account. And with that little bit of financial security and the feeling that, I okay, I can make a living out of this sport now, Came this overwhelming need to give back in some way. Um, I'd always known that tennis was sort of essentially a self-absorbed, self-centered project and sport, and and necessarily so. You know, it's um, you have to focus completely on yourself and on improving yourself to get to to the top of a sport like that. But it never sat perfectly with me. So I guess at the first chance that I had to. To give back, I sort of jumped at it and started just doing some research online and uh, I came across the website 80,000 hours online and it absolutely blew my mind Uh, just how concise their advice was, uh, how practical their advice was for any given career and the two tenets that sort of stuck with me the most and ones that I felt were wholly applicable to a tennis career were the ideas of earning to give and advocacy. And it made a lot of sense to me that if I could reach the heights of a tennis career, then I would be earning a pretty decent amount of money. And the more money I earned, the more that I could give away. So that was the first part. And then the other part that comes along with doing well in tennis is you get recognized and you get some measure of fame. And with that fame comes a bigger platform to spread messages that you think are worthy. So those two two things actually really were life-changing for me like the the idea that I could use my tennis career not only to benefit myself and to feel success in my own right but to actually make a a big positive impact in the world
0: yeah fantastic and I'd, I'd love to pick up on all those things especially this idea of having a platform as a uh, pro athlete one thing I would like to touch on though is the fact that you turned a uh, vegetarian and I take it largely for ethical reasons as well, that's unusual at the best of times, but it's especially unusual given that you're an athlete yourself. Um, can you say something about what it's like to drop meat as a professional athlete? Um, yeah, what kind of reaction have you got to that and how has it turned out for you? Yeah,
1: sure. It might, it might be even more unusual considering I come from a sheep and beef farm in New Zealand um, and, you know, grew up on a, on a diet of red meat, you know, a couple of times a day, seven days a week. Uh, but it was... I think through my twenties, I was on a slow burn towards some pretty big ethical realizations. Uh, I took, uh, you know, I, I studied a bit of philosophy in my in my bachelor of arts in my early twenties, and uh, read a, an environmental philosophy paper that spoke a bit about vegetarianism and some of the arguments and counter arguments, and some of the arguments made sense to me then, um, and. I counted it all with yes, but I'm an athlete and I need protein, therefore I need meat and that was sort of that. And I didn't really think about it too much more until I think around 3 or 4 years ago, probably probably around 4 years ago. I was in Tokyo for a tennis tournament and uh I went out with a group of guys to a sushi restaurant that one of the players had been eating at for the last 10 years and he knew the chefs and it was a really lovely little place. And so he was ordering all of the rounds for us and it was absolutely delicious. Um, and the fourth or fifth round that he ordered, he, he ordered chopped whale and there was just something shocking about the idea of eating whale. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't even fathom eating a whale. So, you know, I said, I threw my hands up and said, guys, this is, this is not for me. I, I, couldn't live with myself if I, if I ate that and, you know, copped a bit of flack for it at the time. And then walking back to the hotel that night and, and, you know, sitting, sitting in front of my computer that night, I was struck by the dissonance, the the moral dissonance there that, that I couldn't bring myself to even think about eating a whale. But in that same meal I had eaten you know, tuna, salmon, a, a, even a beef tartare sushi, and hadn't thought twice about it. And for the first time in my life, that just struck me as ridiculous. And so that just set off a, a big sort of chain reaction in my mind where I thought, you know, why why do I consider eating a whale so so morally abhorrent, but I'm fine to eat the a cow or the pig that I ate for breakfast that morning, or you know I go home and and always my favorite meal had been a rack of lamb, like what what is the difference there and the more I thought about it, the more I realized there wasn't a valid moral or ethical difference, and all that I was relying on were were some pretty paper thin arguments of sort of tradition and yes, but I'm an athlete and the more I looked into it, and the more I researched, the more I read about, and you know, the environmental aspect of, of eating meat, the more I realised all of my excuses were drying up, very quickly. And actually, I'd, I'd say it was it was the environmental aspect of it that tipped me over the edge. So I made a deal with myself that when I I, I was living in Barcelona at the time, when I got back to Barcelona, I was doing a two week training block. I said, okay, I'm gonna eat vegan or vegetarian for the next two weeks. And if I don't feel, you know, like I have a lack of energy, if I don't feel like my performance dips, then that's the last excuse, you know. And, and if I'm honest with myself and I'm not feeling worse physically, then then I can't eat meat anymore. And, you know, I I ate vegetarian for those two weeks and um, felt great. And yeah, I haven't eaten meat since.
0: Yeah, awesome. Great answer. Um, Actually, I can imagine some people will be curious now what your major sources of protein are right now i would say it's a,
1: a form of soy so it would either be tofu or tempeh i think my, my favorite um vegetarian source of protein is uh seitan i mean so when i'm at home I, I cook and eat vegan uh but it's just a sort of an unfortunate necessity on tour to be vegetarian because it's so hard in some places to find protein sources that are vegan
2: so you've already touched upon this a little bit, but let's delve into what high-impact athletes really is. And maybe a good place to start us off here is to ask about what kind of opportunity you saw in setting up this new organisation. You know, you can kind of look around the effective altruism space and there's already a lot of organisations that are focused on on getting people to make these high-impact donations. And yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear about what unique opportunity you saw for high-impact athletes and, and ultimately what you're, what you're trying to achieve with it.
1: Sure. So, so following on from what I was saying earlier about my discovery of effective altruism, uh, in 2015, I started donating to effective organizations. The next year, I made a, a 1% pledge through giving what we can. And then each year, stepped that up uh, quite significantly until last year, uh, 2020, I believe at the start of the year, I had pledged 8% as a, as a an internal mental commitment. Uh, and then COVID hit and I essentially lost my job and spent a lot of time sitting on my bum and twiddling my thumbs, not really knowing what was going to happen next, uh, tennis-wise. And f- for the first time in my career, really, that afforded me the opportunity to have a lot of time to think uh, and one of the thoughts that came up with, for me was how can i be doing more in the world uh and as luck would have it the atp had just partnered with coursera and so we were given a, a free membership to learn some stuff online so i was just browsing through that and i saw peter singer's effective altruism course through princeton and so i signed up for that and just mowed through it in a few days um, and it, it wasn't new material for me because I, you know, I had been a big fan of effective altruism for a while, but what it did do was really reinvigorate my passion for having a maximal impact on the world and, and got me thinking about how I could do more. And I didn't feel like I could raise the percentage that I'd pledged because I'd essentially just lost my job. Um, but it got me thinking about this, that second tenet that, uh, that I'd learned, uh, with my first encounter with Effective Altruism, which was advocacy, and got me thinking about how I could be a better advocate. And I had the idea of starting my own brand slash organization, something that could hopefully pick up its own momentum and and not uh, force me to to use all of my time speaking, but rather would maybe do some of the speaking for me. And uh, that that was the conception of high-impact athletes, was... The idea that uh, maybe my most uh, effective method of being an advocate would be to start an organization start a brand and, and and get people on board that way and then I just I started speaking to everyone I could reach uh, about this idea and about whether it was a good or a bad idea whether I had the skills or the the bandwidth even to to get it going and yeah I mean luckily you know I didn't have too much else on my plate at the time because if i'd been playing tennis the same way i usually am during the year there's there's no chance this would have had the space or the time to get started and then the thing that started uh really becoming apparent pretty early on was that there is a point of difference in high impact athletes compared to the rest of the ea space in that i am a professional athlete and you know i had reached out on the ea forums um I can't remember how long ago saying, Hey, are there any other pro athlete aspiring EAs? And as far as I could tell, and as far as everyone else could tell, not really. So I thought, okay, this is actually a really, this is a unique opportunity for me to try and bring EA into the athletic space. And, uh, as I did more research, I, I came across raising for effective giving who I thought have done a fantastic job in the poker space. You know, they, they really have moved a lot of money there. So I thought, well, that's, that is my model right there. I'm, I'm going to try to be the raising for effective giving in the sports space. Um, and yeah, it, it is, I might be selling EA a little short by saying this, but I do think one of the, uh, weaknesses at the moment of EA is just how unheard of it is. Uh, you know, it, it is just such a, a fantastic idea. It's, it's almost a no brainer. Like I, I Whenever I explain the idea to people, everyone is immediately on board because how could you not be on board with trying to do the most good possible? Uh, And so I feel like that idea should be as as mainstream as we can possibly make it. And I do think that sport is an incredible vehicle for that because, for better or worse, athletes have huge followings and teams have huge followings. And you know, I was looking up the numbers of fans. For different sports around the world and it's just you know it's, it's it's in the billions and billions so I thought this was a real opportunity to try try and bring effective altruism in into a more mainstream space and hopefully uh, sweep up millions more people into giving effectively and doing the most good possible
2: yeah that's that's so interesting and there's there's tons I kind of want to pick up on here but one thing that that really resonated with me is this bizarre realization about how little public awareness there is around effective altruism and that in large part right kind of appears to be by design a little bit at at least in the early days you know ea was really focused on getting people at elite universities or or kind of organization um but now you kind of realize this there's really limits as well right how many people can can get involved and ea has been you know in some ways rightfully criticized as well for for not really focusing on uh, inclusiveness as much and yeah like like as you said it can be super important to, to have these public facing organizations that are better at kind of achieving outreach and achieving public support and and fostering this kind of more inclusive approach um yeah and and high impact athletes really seems like a like a great way to do this yeah exactly and i and i
1: I have read some pieces in the past that uh, spoke about a concern to get the messaging of effective altruism right before really spreading out. And I do understand that concern. But I think if you keep the message simple and you keep the message about let's give effectively if we can, let's do the most good if we can, I I think that's quite hard to misinterpret. And if it's kept that simple and it spreads as wide as possible, then I, I really do think the amount of Marginal impact made with the spreading of that message would just be immense.
0: Yeah, I think it's worth picking up on that, right? So I wonder if the best pitch for selling EA ideas to some audience from, you know, like a top uni, just to like a bunch of smart, kind of nerdy students who like decide to spontaneously go to talks about effective altruism, that pitch is probably going to be different from the best pitch for a kind of slightly wider like uh, demographic or for um, pro athletes in particular which is like a very kind of unusual bunch of people so I want to know like what have you found really kind of works unusually well when you're like selling these ideas to other athletes and how how should that kind of pitch be tweaked for this um, group of people that's that's something I feel like I'm
1: still figuring out Uh, I do think you make a really good point that the audience is very different. I, f- I feel like EA is mainly comprised of super intelligent people who have been preselected in some way, you know, either they've read a book about, uh, effective giving or some aspect of that, or they've been at a university where they've seen a chapter on, of effective altruism or something affiliated with it. Uh, and for the most part, uh, athletes, I shouldn't say that athletes aren't super intelligent as a rule. Um, but they, they, I definitely can say that as a general rule, they've spent uh, less time studying than most because uh, simply because of the singularity of focus required to become a professional athlete in most cases. Um, so I, I do feel like I need to tailor the pitch uh, to my target audience. And what that has meant for me so far is taking away the more philosophically obscure aspects of effective altruism, trying to lead in with the the ideas that are already more mainstream and well-known. I mean, you know, something like climate change is is so current and is so mainstream that it's a good endpoint point to, to start speaking about other things. Because, you know, if you can say, okay, obviously ch- climate change is a huge issue that we're facing in the world and it makes sense that we should focus on interventions that are the most cost effective and impactful in climate change and then there are also these other cause areas where we should be doing the same things and you know another area that's sort of a a a no-brainer for people to get on board with is extreme poverty and, and children dying so you know from climate change you can lead into extreme poverty and about how some charities are so much more impactful than others and you know there are a few sort of Uh, ea tropes that i rely upon in terms of you know the the what the difference can be between an average charity and a good charity and and this sort of stuff um and i'm i'm really i am in the process of trying to make a decision about whether i include the uh the long-termism aspects of effective altruism on the you know on the front page of the website uh and there, there are two sides to that argument, as I see it. The one side is that it seems like effective altruism is is leaning further and further towards long termism, as as a a cause area that that really deserves a lot of funding. And the other side of it, and 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 I would say, you know, I I completely step back when it comes to sort of making those decisions and thinking about those decisions. I mean, I I have the utmost respect for the thinking that goes on in effective altruism. So if people are saying that that's a cause area that's really worthy of consideration and funding, then hats off and, you know, I'll listen to you. Um, But then on the other side of it is I am trying to cater for a specific audience. And I feel like the ideas of long-termism, at least some of the ideas of long-termism, are far enough down the effective altruism road that if I spoke about them first off, I think they might turn some people away. Uh, you know, ideas like uh, AI governance and, and that sort of stuff, when you when you go deeply into them, they start making sense. But when you try and compare them to saving a starving kid or that sort of thing, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to make a sell to someone who's never heard of effective altruism on between those two points.
0: I think that's a really important point. You know, one difference there is that students who are just selecting themselves for getting into this stuff are way more likely to react positively to just like hearing about the kind of wackiest ideas coming out of ea but um for everyone else i think you're absolutely right that the best way to encourage people to kind of get excited about effective altruism is to start with those common intuitions and start with those kind of obvious cases a great example you gave was the example of the way you felt about eating whale (laughs) and then moving from them towards the kind of more general conclusions that 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 or the kind of slightly more unexpected conclusions that make up EA. Yeah, actually, that's
1: a great analogy. I think, yeah, that's that's actually, that's spot on right there. You know, you start with the one that makes sense and then move on to the thing that makes a little less sense at face value, but you just need to sort of do a bit more thinking about. And that's that's another side of it is, you know, I am approaching people for the first time about this stuff. And these are people who not one of the people i've spoken to has heard about effective altruism before so it is really a, a novel idea for these people and what i'm hoping for is that you know i make these relationships and these people make commitments and get on board sort of softly to begin with and i'm really hoping that i can maintain those relationships and and develop those relationships and over the years speak a lot more to those people about effective altruism and over the years, try and increase their pledge percentages. Try and introduce other ideas in effective altruism. Try to introduce the athletes to people within the effective altruism community, and and really, you know, onboard them properly. So it's not just me saying, "Hey, here's a cool idea. Why don't you get on board?" It's them actively reaching out. But you know, I'm, I feel like until I have people firmly on board, then the more far reaching ideas of effective altruism might be a little out of reach.
0: Yeah, that sounds that sounds right. Um and following up on this, one thing I'm also really interested to know is something about how well suited pro athletes in particular are to these ideas. And, you know, I'm I'm conflicted right now because you might think, well on one hand, if you want to be really good at this stuff, you have to be really driven by results by kind of measuring your performance and this has a lot to do with ideas about effectiveness in charity and on the other hand especially if you're doing an individual sport you might be unusually driven by individual personal success that maybe pushes against being being kind of willing to like commit or like make um some kind of sacrifice for these things so yeah which way does it which way does it turn out I feel like I probably need another year or so
1: to to give you a really informed answer. But based on my experience so far, uh, and HIA is is really, it's less than two months old at this point, so it's still very, very early days. Uh, But the thing going for athletes is a professional athlete inevitably for most of their career has had a very, very strong focus on optimization. Because, in order to get to the top, in order to get to a place where you're making money in a sport, you have to have optimized for many, many years. Like, it just, you don't get a leg over your competition if you're not doing that. So, I think optimization in, in sport is is a very similar idea to, to effective altruism. It's optimization in, in charity. Um, and I have a feeling that the biggest barrier uh for professional athletes is it's not so much the self-centeredness although i think that could play a role but but i think it's more that they are flooded with requests you know the the higher you get in a sport the more famous you get and the more famous you get the more requests you get of your time and energy and money and so these people i'm speaking to have been approached you know countless times for all sorts of different things including charity uh, and that actually, I think, is my biggest point of difference with HIA is that I can gain access to athletes because I am an athlete, and I can speak to these people on an equivalent level. You know, I, I can say, "Hey, this is something that I do. Here's why I believe in it, and I I really would love for you to join me." And it's not coming from a manager, it's not coming from an agent, it's not coming from a salesperson, it's coming from one of their peers, and in, in terms of access to athletes, that's invaluable. And based on the response I've had so far and, and, you know, the sort of hit rate I've had with people coming on board, I would also, I think I have to assume that it's also a, a huge uh, benefit or weapon in, in terms of um, onboarding.
2: As you mentioned that, right? Athletes are really busy people and um, kind of brings me on to another question, which is that you are an athlete, right? And you are an incredibly busy person um you touched upon earlier in our conversation about how you had uh, a couple of months uh, off uh, early in your career where you were able to kind of explore other things but right now right you we see you're you're playing in the australian opens you're setting up this new ngo and it, it makes me wonder how you're able to, to balance these things out and if you maybe have any advice about kind of time management or organizational skills that that allow you to to pull off this this really busy busy work scheme
1: well, the last 10 days have been, have been great because I've been stuck in a hotel room with nothing else to do. So I've been able to spend a lot of time on HIA. Um, but yeah, this is something that I, I really do have to figure out. I'm actually in the process of hiring a director of operations. And what I'm hoping that person is going to do is going to take a huge amount of the admin responsibilities off my shoulders Uh, because I know for a fact that I can't keep up the amount of work that I've been putting into HIA while I have a full season Um, yeah I mean it's uh, it really ramped up sort of uh, as soon as the season finished the tennis season generally finishes sort of early to mid-November and that's when I really started making a push to make HIA public to try and be ready for the giving season of 2020 and I completely underestimated the amount of work and time and effort uh, would go into it at that stage. So it was a a bit of a rude awakening. And at the same time, like a a fascinating and and amazing learning curve, such a steep learning curve Uh, and, you know, learning things for the first time. I, I mean, even down to things as basic as, you know, how to make a decent spreadsheet or, you know, like how to, how to set up an email campaign system or, you know, that sort of stuff that I just never would have thought I'd, I'd be learning how to do a year ago. Um, but yeah, so, so uh, to answer your question, it's a lot of time and I'm going to need some help. Uh, I've been lucky enough to have a couple of unpaid interns come on board end of December to help me out. Uh, one who's been particularly helpful on the social media side. Uh, she's just been fantastic and, and taking that whole burden off me. And I feel like I need one one other person who is really hungry to make this organization grow and to free my time up so that the essentially what, what I want to do with my time is purely focus on reaching out to athletes because that's where I think I have something unique to offer EA. Uh, you know, so many people could do the admin side of HIA so much better than me. Uh, so please, yeah, find someone to do
0: that and just let me, let me reach out to to athletes and get them on board. Let, let's seize on this moment then. If anyone's listening right now and is thinking, hang on a minute, that, that could be something I, I, I could do. How do they How do they get in touch?
1: Uh, yeah, go to the website, highimpactathletes.org and in the About tab, there's a jobs section and all of the information for the role is there and yeah, just send me an email. Um, we're in the process now uh, with my advisors of, uh, there are a bunch of people who are sort of going through the rounds but it is just a rolling hire and... As soon as we find the person who's right for the job, then, then it's bombs away. So yeah, please please do reach out.
0: Something else I wanted to ask about is how are you thinking about spreading this message beyond the first few joiners? And those joiners, I take it you've, you've spoken to them directly. You've presumably put a bunch of time into um, getting these ideas across. But going forwards, do you see some possibility of the idea just kind of taking wing on its own once you get this kind of critical mass of people signing up you get their followers interested um and the, there's this kind of word of mouth effect where the idea is just good enough just to sustain itself do you think that kind of lift off could ever could ever happen
1: that's what i'm really hoping for i mean that that's i think the potential that i mean the the potential there i think is huge because of athletes being the target audience i mean if you get if you get the the biggest athletes in the world in the biggest sports, they have reach of just tens of millions, if not more. This is a, an an outreach or a growth strategy that I I'm not sure if it's the best way to go. And you know I'm I'm constantly reaching out to people to speak about this, but in an ideal world, I get enough top tennis players on board that I can then reach out to another sport and um, makes sense for me to focus to begin with in the States on the team sports because they are, it's like a honeypot of, of earnings. They, they earn such good money and they have such big names and America is so sport crazy that, um, yeah, I, I think that's the, the best first place to look. So I'm hoping that uh, with the bigger names in tennis, they have personal connections in some of these sports. And that's the other cool thing about uh, targeting athletes is that at the very top level, they they all know each other or at least they have access to each other. So if you get someone on board with this idea, then he'll know someone. Like, for example, Stefanos Sitsipas is on board with HIA and he's friends, like goes on holidays with the guy who just signed the most lucrative NBA contract ever. And so, you know, if I can get close enough uh with Steph and, and you know, if he's on board enough with the ideas of HIA, then I assume that's something he'd be happy speaking about with Giannis. And, you know, that's a guy who's going to be a global megastar for the next 10 years or whatever. So I'm hoping that, uh, you know, it's like a, I listened to a podcast with Naval Ravikant the other day and he spoke about a thing called network effect. And I'm hoping that it's like every added user or every added athlete will then contribute to making it easier to get more athletes. Uh, Failing that, I don't know. I think I'll have to go back to the drawing board.
2: Yeah, it's it's really interesting, right? Kind of seeing athletes and and sport being able to to push, right? These these social causes. I don't I don't know if you um I like kind of heard, but in in the UK here we've got this footballer called called Marcus Rashford who's really kind of uh, lambasting the the government for for failing to provide uh, free school meals during during COVID. And we saw earlier um in in twenty twenty, you know, with the Black Lives Matter protests of of how kind of athletes. Uh, from all different kind of sports rallied around this this cause and really made it uh, a lot a lot more visible around the world and yeah kind of like thinking about Black Lives Matters as well right it's it's interesting to see how it can spread really quickly all of a sudden right um you had ages ago um like Colin Kaepernick kind of standing alone and then it just kind of takes off right and and it spreads once it reaches some kind of critical mass or kind of in inflection point.
1: Yes, absolutely. And then, then the next question is, okay, how do we get one of those top athletes to be spreading the effective altruism message? Because, you know, someone like Marcus Rashford, or in tennis, the, the best example is Naomi Osaka. She's now by far the top female athlete, uh, top paid female athlete in the world. And it's basically a result of her taking a firm stand on, on Black Lives Matter and walking out at the US Open with masks, with the names of different people who had had, you know, racial injustice committed upon them. And so it's, it's yeah, how, how, do we, how do we harness the social influence and the power of sport and of athletes and use that for effective altruism? Because I do think, you know, effective altruism causes are as worthy as they could possibly be. So if we can get some of these people to understand that, then I think we're
0: away and laughing. Mm. That's, that's a great point as well. And you don't want it to come off too cynical or anything. But it is just true that as well as just like, you know, doing all this good by like signing up to pledge some amount of your winnings to effective causes, you know, it's also just great from like a self-interested perspective, because, you know, if you have this platform, well, the press will pick up on it. And these kind of EA ideas, at least the kind of core ideas, are so just uncontroversially like nice that... Everyone's going to be really happy with that. Um, so there's kind of like, there's just no one who loses in that, in that picture.
1: I totally agree. I think the, the tricky thing there is that with these top athletes, uh, HIA or other EA orgs are sort of competing for an athlete's patronage with the big household charity names who have the multi million dollar marketing budgets and the teams of people who can give them lots of platitudes and make them feel special. Um, so what what I'm aiming for is a more pure sort of, hey, this is what I'm doing. Like this, you know, I I, I took the 10% pledge earlier this year. Like I can I can show you that I've made this public. I'm accountable. Uh, this is why we're doing it. It's not it's not for publicity. If it does get publicity, that's a great thing. But we're doing this for the right reasons. And and yeah, let's let's get on board together with this. So I'm hoping that the purity of that message and the the staggering numbers that you can see uh, through effective altruism organizations i'm hoping that that's the thing that will sway people rather than you know being being flown somewhere to have a photo shoot or that sort of thing
2: yeah i'm like curious on the other side as well right what kind of feedback or reactions you got from within the ea community i don't know if there were like any particular bits of advice or kind of guidance you got there that um yeah you you'd want to talk about
1: I have to say that the EA community is the most generous, helpful, friendly, amazing community I've ever come across. It's been astounding to me how generous people are with their time. Uh, You know, I'm I'm reaching out to people who have no real reason to want to speak to me and, you know, will end up having an hour conversation of me just asking stupid questions and them being ultra patient and giving me great answers. So, I mean, I, I can't thank the people in the EA community enough for the help that I've been given, um, not just in person and reaching out and having zoom calls and that sort of thing. But, you know, on the EA forums, uh, I put up a couple of posts early on about high impact athletes and there was such interesting discussion about, you know, what I should include on the site, what I shouldn't include on the site, how certain copy came across in terms of messaging, um, there's been a lot of conversation about uh, including or not including long termism. Uh, the, the push from the EA community has been to include and, you know, earlier today I was designing a web page and, and writing some copy uh, in preparation for if, if I did decide to include it. So yeah, that I think the long termism side has been the strongest message to come out of it, but I really, yeah, I've just been so pleasantly surprised at how helpful people have been and Really, it um, it's been quite gratifying and validating for me to see the enthusiasm and excitement that some of the sort of leading figures in EA have had for the idea. So yeah, I, I'm I'm pumped with the response from from the EA community.
0: I think it'd be great just to do a massive pivot now and just talk about sports more generally, since we have like a pro athlete on on the podcast, which is not normal. Um, so our first question, I guess something like this what does it what does it take just psychologically to do like exceptionally well in a sport and especially an individual sport like tennis and also how much of those attributes can be trained or learned and how much do you just have to be lucky to have been to have been born with
1: that is a super difficult question uh okay so the first part I can only speak to tennis, and it's incredibly difficult psychologically. It's, I think, probably one of the most difficult sports in the world psychologically, if not the most difficult, uh, due to a number of factors. One is you're losing every week, more or less. Like, you are failing every week. Uh, I think a great example of that is Novak Djokovic had, I think, the most successful season of any tennis player ever ever. I can't remember what year it was, but the percentage of points that he won that season was 53%. So even even having the most successful season of any player ever, he still lost 47 of 47% of the points he played that year. And I think that sort of sums up tennis in a nutshell is you fail so much and if you can't deal with failure and be able to take the lessons from it and pick yourself back up and and try and be better the next week, then you can't survive and then when you when you couple that with the longest season of of any sport, you know we're on the road from the last week of December through to the middle of November, covering you know most continents in the world and maybe with a few weeks of of break between that and you know at the end of the year we might have 2 weeks of holiday and then have to start the pre-season training because that's the only time we actually have to to try and build our bodies before we start the next season so it's it's an incredibly long arduous season with a ridiculous amount of international travel that it, you can't get around it it takes a toll on your mind and your body and then on top of that you've got a high stress performance environment where you're losing all the time so yes psychologically it's uh it's insanely hard. And I think the benefit of that is I really do think that tennis is it's a it's a harder testing ground than most. And I think people who can survive tennis and do well in it probably are pretty well equipped to come out the back end and and succeed in many other areas. And I do think it really is helping me deal with, you know, the people who who don't come on board with HIA, the people I reach out to who who are not interested and then to your other points uh, whether it's sort of nature or nurture as to as to whether you're predisposed towards you know being able to deal with that sort of stuff i think it <laughs> this this probably sounds like a real cop out but i think it's probably about half and half i think some people some people are competitive by nature and i think if you're competitive then you're more predisposed towards being okay with getting beaten or no that's that's the wrong way of putting it not being okay with getting beaten but you know like but it motivates taking, you rather than yeah, taking you. being beaten with like oh that's not going to happen again or yeah. you know that sort of thing but then the other side of it is i really do think a winning mindset can be trained uh, i think rafael nadal is a perfect example of that you know he's had the he's had such strict guidance around him since he was sort of 10 years old with his uncle and uh, you know, not allowed to say the wrong things without being corrected. Not being allowed to moan. Not being allowed to not being allowed to be negative. Like all of these things. And now you see that guy, and he is a ferocious competitor on court. I mean, he's the most intimidating competitor probably ever in any sport. His his mindset is beyond belief. Um, so yeah, I do think there's an aspect of training and another another. Story I read was about a Hungarian psychologist whose name I will forget, but it's the guy who who said I can train my kids given the right environment to be world class at anything, and he from childhood or from infancy trained his three daughters in chess. Is that the same guy?
0: Oh, oh this is um Polgar.
1: Yes, prob- probably. Yeah. So I think uh, one of them was like a you know got to number twenty or thirty or something in the world. And the other one was an international grandmaster and the other one was like a national champion or something. So, you know, like, yeah, so that that sort of shows the power of nurture. Uh, yeah, in professional sport, I mean, uh, there is very much a, a genetic uh, range that you have to sort of be given um, for each sport. You know, I, I remember reading recently that uh, your chances of making it in the NBA double with every extra inch taller you are. Um, so there are those sorts of things, but yeah, I do think nurture play plays a large part as well.
2: This might be like a, a really silly question, but I'm curious about if there's like any unique psychological aspects that make for like a really good athlete, um, but not like another high performer, like a CEO or an entrepreneur, like if there's any kind of unique qualities there that apply to, to sport, but, but not really outside of it.
1: That's a, that's a great question. And I, I don't. I don't know, but I I think the thing that I see in all of the really top tennis players is a singularity of focus that I think borders on or even sort of vaults over into obsession. And I don't know if that's helpful to someone like a CEO or someone like a startup founder or someone like an academic. I mean, I could see how that would be helpful, but I could also see how that sort of obsession and and self-absorption would be a uh, a parachute and and you know if you were trying to be a ceo wouldn't wouldn't allow you the team skills or that sort of thing to get ahead
0: picking up on that i i, I was planning on uh, on asking this which is all these qualities that make exceptional sports people the way they are are those qualities virtues like outside of the football pitch or the tennis court um in other words like would a uh, just top athlete basically be likely to succeed at basically anything they put their mind to or is it like a really good thing that these sports exist just to give these people <laughs> a playground and like make sure these psychopaths are like contained to <laughs> a harmless harmless thing uh
1: i feel like i'm i'm walking on eggshells here <laughs> <laughs> You can pass uh I think to to an extent, it's a good thing that uh, professional sport exists, and and you know, um, this I think goes beyond just for the individual. I do think uh, it's a great thing that professional sports exists for society's sake. I mean, I think it's a it's a fantastic release of pent up aggression or pent up frustration. You know, it's like a, a very rules driven, restricted way that we can just. Release and get an endorphin rush and and get some dopamine and you know like cheer and see a battle and pick sides and all of these things that I think are probably just part of our animal nature that uh, society necessarily represses for the main part. Um, yeah, and it's a really like it, it would be a really interesting thing to if you had Novak Djokovic and in one life he did his tennis and then you could sort of simulate another life where sport didn't exist i have a feeling his head would explode but yeah i I can't say for sure
0: yeah that's so interesting so another thing i'm I'm curious to know um is whether for most people who try to turn pro at a certain sport it ends up being worth it right so like one thought is that when it comes to the pro sports people we normally learn about, those people are being selected for based on their success. In other words, we're like much less likely to learn about the, you know, 10, 50, 100 um, failures is maybe a strong word, but like the folks who didn't quite get to the very top echelon for every one person who is like a kind of superstar. Um, And especially because it's like often necessary, more or less, in some sports at least, to start training very young and very hard. You just have to make big sacrifices, like you mentioned earlier. Often, you know, like um, some other potential career just like falls by the wayside in a way that's kind of very hard to pick back up. So, yeah, I want to hear about how tough pro sport can be at these like top levels and whether you've just kind of seen that happen firsthand, any of the kind of like, yeah, like tougher tougher aspects to this game.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think again, tennis is really the only, the only sport I can speak about with any authority. But in tennis, uh, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of the people that I saw around me growing up and and you know coming through into my sort of twenties, uh, they're not playing tennis anymore. Uh, it's it's a tiny, tiny percentage of people who even get to the stage where they get a pro ranking and you know it's only when you get to the very peak of that professional pyramid in tennis that you're actually making a living um you know i I said earlier that in 2015 it was the first year that i actually saved any money at the end of the year and i think you know i i went pro full-time i think in 2008 so there were seven years there where i i lost money by playing tennis and I was, you know, one of the top juniors in my country. I was considered a big talent. I m- moved up pretty quickly, pretty early. And then it's just incredibly hard. And there are tens of thousands of people who have put in as much work as you or more work than you. And they're all wanting the same thing as well. I mean, to put it in perspective, you know, um, e- even even to put it in perspective to another sport, uh Say American football, uh, I don't know how many teams there are in the NFL. Let's say there are there are twenty teams in the NFL. Those squads are probably they're like forty to sixty people, right? So let's let's say fifty people. So there are let's say a thousand people in the NFL who are earning amazing money. Like they're all on great salaries. Well the the thousandth ranked tennis player is uh losing thousands and thousands of dollars a year playing professional tennis. Um, so yeah, it, it is incredibly difficult. Uh, and you know, that's also, uh, you know, American football is selecting from a population of 300 or so million, whereas tennis is selecting from a population of the world. Um, so yeah, in, incredibly difficult to make it as a pro. Uh, I know many people who have gone, you know, over a decade trying to make it as a pro and have never made it. Um, and I think the the real definition of making it as a pro is can I earn a living from this sport? Uh, and until you're there, I, I don't think you you've made it so to speak. Um, yeah, so it's an incredibly difficult path. It's uh, in my experience, it's you know hardly anyone that I saw around me, even through the lower levels of professional events, is still playing tennis today.
2: Uh, like. One thing I want to ask, following on from from what you said there, right, is how you kind of thought about this career decision your, yourself, then, right, and and how you kind of viewed um, the risks around like professional sports, right? Was there ever any doubt that this wasn't going to be something you were going to try or like kind of stick at for for as long as possible? And were there any like alternatives you you considered to to tennis for like a, a longer period of time? For
1: me, there was never really any doubt that I'd try for a career in, in professional sport. Uh, for me, there was a little more ambivalence around, around which, that, which sport that would be. Uh, so when I was younger, I, I played a lot of football, a lot of soccer. And um, I think when I was 14, I was in the New Zealand team for both tennis and soccer. So then the New Zealand Soccer Federation got in touch and said, hey, if you want to stay in the team, for next year, you're going to have to train year round in soccer, which would necessitate giving up tennis. So that, that choice was sort of forced on me at the time. And I chose tennis. And I think when I made that decision, it set my, it sort of, you know, I I got on the train tracks at that point. It was like, okay, well, if I've given up something that I love, and I've given it up in order to focus on This one thing then I'm going to try and follow this track as as far as it'll take me and uh yeah so I think from a fairly young age I had quite a lot of conviction about wanting to try a a professional sporting career and my my family are very strict on academics you know I I, um finished school obviously actually I did my last year of school by correspondence so I was I moved to Slovakia which is a completely different story but um but I, uh, after I finished school, uh, I started a, a university degree extramurally through a New Zealand university called Massey University. And, and so I was always not hedging my bets, so to speak, but, um, you know, I, I've never been able to bear the thought of only having tennis in my life. Uh, so I've always had something else, whether it's been study or, you know, trying to start up a company or learn guitar or you know something else I've always had 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 something that I'm trying to do and I think that's actually taken a bit of the pressure off you know having to do well in in a tennis career because I've kept other options open but but yeah for me it was an early decision to try and go pro
0: I want to ask about the Olympics and in particular about why they are so important and valuable. So the most important to to kind of flag here is just how much they cost. So between the summer and winter games, you know, you get costs running upwards of tens of billions of dollars. This is every four years or so, right? And you might think from a kind of pure EA perspective, well, that money could plausibly do more good spent elsewhere. At least it could do more tangible and robust good, like saving lives and preventing diseases. On the other hand, the value of running these kind of huge international sporting events and just beaming them into everyone's living rooms, it's harder to pin down. I think you've already kind of alluded to some of it. Some of it has to do with maybe like a sense of shared purpose or like national pride, a sense of aspiration. Um, So there's a few questions here. One is just like, from the athlete's perspective, you've competed in in the Olympics. And I really want to know like what, what it's like and why it's like so special. And there's this other question about, given that you are, you have this kind of EA aspects to your thinking. Do you feel any tension there about um, these kind of like this really expensive, huge events? And this applies to other, like presumably other kind of big sports events as well. And your kind of EA EA values, where you're kind of thinking about what is most cost effective.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I'd never actually thought about it from an EA point before, but it is a really interesting thing that you raise. And as you were speaking there, I just thought uh, if you were really looking at it from from a strict EA point of view, then yes, you've got the, the argument that those tens of billions of dollars could plausibly be more effectively spent elsewhere. But uh, if you consider nuclear threat to be a, a viable risk, then perhaps something every four years that is... What I consider to be the, really the only truly global event that brings countries together, that has a good feeling around it uh, on all sides, perhaps the the goodwill that's generated from something like that is worth the cost. Um, you know, that's not something I've thought about before at all, but uh, it would be interesting to explore that. In terms of what it means uh, from from a personal level, I mean, that that was... Absolutely one of the highlights of my life was walking into the arena in Rio with the New Zealand team. Uh, And it it is really the only event that showcases a vast number of sports to the world. I mean, you know, who watches Javelin in any other year except the Olympics, you know? But come Olympics year... Javelin's amazing, and it's exciting, and those people were heroes. Uh, so I think it, I, it, it, the Olympics gives the majority of sports that people compete in something to work towards. That, that truly feels worthwhile. So I don't think that value can be underrated or underestimated. Um, in saying that, now that you've brought it up, I, I do understand the tension there uh, around something costing so much. Uh, and yeah i'm I'm definitely gonna have to have to give that a little more thought uh but maybe this is just (laughs) a defense mechanism but um my my gut feeling here is that it gives a lot more to the world as a whole than it takes uh yeah but see now even saying that i'm i'm thinking about how many problems could be solved with those tens of billions of dollars
2: yeah, I mean, like, I guess it gets at some points like the limit of VA as well, right? Or like at least in terms of like being able to to quantify good, and yeah, it's 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 a lot easier to to run RCTs with malaria nets than it is like with the Olympics. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's also a bit like getting at like action stepwise, right? If you kind of think about it, getting people to to donate ten percent of their income is already such a hard kind of ethical case to do. Um yeah like I kind of imagining what it would might mean from like a branding kind of point of view right if if EA suddenly uh pushes um uh, getting rid of this very popular sports event and if there's even any hope in it in it being able to do that one one
1: potential middle ground is that we just get all of the olympic athletes to become high impact athletes and donate a percentage of their income and and get all their followings on board and then the olympics is just going to be a huge positive
0: Yeah that's a great answer Um, and I think there's a point to be made here about messaging and prioritising which is that even if you thought the like ledger didn't add up in this case and it would be best if the Olympics trimmed back some of its successes and spent the money on other things it doesn't follow that you should spend time yourself like pushing on that And making, stealing money from the Olympics to give to your favourite charities your thing, right? Because that would come off as psychopathic. Um, And even if it were right, which I'm doubtful about, it would really hurt the movement as a whole. And it would entrench this image of um, EA types as a bunch of kind of puritanical killjoys. Um, And crucially, there are so many other better things to push against. So, you know, another thing that costs tens of billions of dollars and contributes to nuclear risk is the world's stockpile of nuclear weapons. Um, So, yeah, it's, I guess, important to flag the often very large gap between thinking that something is not a good thing on balance and then deciding to go around advocating for getting rid of it, if that makes sense.
1: Right. And another thought that I just had, and I really haven't done much reading on this at all, but uh, I know there's an organization called the Happier Lives Institute, and I know that there is a, a philosophical position that uh, people feeling an abundance of joy is is worth something or potentially worth as much as the opposite amount of suffering or or that sort of thing and it would be an interesting question to look into you know how much joy does the olympics bring to the world because i really do think it's you know i mean maybe it's just my household but the olympics was always such a huge deal and everyone was excited and you know it doesn't it wouldn't even matter if you were following athletes from your own country if there was a beautiful story uh it's just heartwarming. I mean, one that comes to mind is, and actually this involves a, a Kiwi a kiwi girl, but uh, it was like the 5K race or something, and there was a big trip in the middle of the pack, and a girl fell down and was obviously hurt, and it was on the last lap, and a, the Kiwi girl uh, stopped and turned around and helped her up, and they walked together to the finish line. I mean, it that literally had me in tears at the time. Uh, and because I think that is just such a display of compassion. I mean, I know, I know what goes into getting to the Olympics. And for those people, it's a once-in-a-four-year uh, event. It's like that is the absolute pinnacle, and they might only get to do it once in their lives. And she stopped her race to turn around and help someone she didn't even really know. Um, and, yeah, so human stories like that and the compassion and the empathy and the joy that they engender, I mean, that probably has moral weight as well
0: yeah i think that's such a great point and yeah i guess on the whole it's just a great thing that at least in wealthier societies we've reached this level of comfort where we don't have to engage with making big sacrifices um or confronting the real like peaks and troughs of emotion uh if we don't want to but it's a really good thing that sport is there to be a kind of theatre for watching people put themselves on the line and make those sacrifices. And it's the same thing when you play a sport as well as watch it, where there's something you only realise when you get into one, where you realise you're able to exercise this part of yourself, which isn't allowed out in normal life. And it is something like a feeling of really pulling together with your team and looking out for one another and moving towards something bigger than yourself something like that anyway
1: absolutely pulling together and also striving like i i feel like you know a reasonable chunk of the population don't have a lot of striving in their lives like really pushing themselves on a day-to-day basis and so, for people who haven't experienced that, seeing people do it is astounding, and for people who have experienced that in their lives, seeing people doing it at that level is astounding so i think it it's sort of it has an aspect of appeal to to everyone
2: yeah this um this is a nice tie into to something else I kind of wanted to to touch upon, which is that like at the moment we've kind of talked about sport in this very kind of professional athlete kind of sense. But what you just talked about there, right, this kind of idea of like sportsmanship and kind of everyday life kind of benefits of sport. Um, I don't know if there's like anything particular you want to, to speak to about that, but kind of like reflection on, yeah, how, how sport can enrich your life uh, or if there's like any general advice you have to people about who want to pick up like a sport or kind of on the fence of, of making that that decision.
1: Right, I mean, so this is this is my brother's, point of view and it's one that I think is just beautiful and true and timeless is we all need to play you know regardless of our age we all need to play at something and for me sport or anything that's an active game like an active way of playing is just perfect because you know you have fun you get breathing harder uh you know ideally you're sort of interacting with people and uh, you know, collaborating or competing, or you know, I, I just think play in general is a really positive, enriching thing. And I think the longer we do that in our lives, the healthier and happier we're going to be. Um, so yeah, I mean, if if this was an advice column, I would say absolutely pick up a sport. You know, pick up pick up something that that allows you to experience the joy of playfulness and playing with other people because you know we don't need to be 5 year olds to to enjoy sort of th- throwing a rock at another rock or or whatever it is that you do it's it's just fun.
0: Yeah, I love that answer. That's really great. One final question on this kind of topic of sport and you're more than welcome to pass it. But yeah, I'm kind of interested. Do you think like really top level sport can ever kind of reach this level of like just beyond, you know, being kind of fun or a form of play can it kind of reach a level of like being beautiful or, or like artistic or some other pretentious word like that what I have in mind is um and I think you've read it this this David Foster Wallace essay um I think it's called Federer as a religious experience where he just kind of he's you know he can write by anything and make it sound uh amazing but he just kind of just really makes you buy into this thought that if you really understand tennis or whatever spot it is and you watch the like absolute best tennis players in the world that it is just better than like oh that's pretty impressive they've clearly traded a lot that's like wow that's that's beautiful like you know football for instance is called a beautiful game for a reason And do you think there's anything to that
1: i really do i i do i think absolute mastery of anything is beautiful to watch and actually it's it you just reminded me of this uh so yeah my wife is a philosophy of religion scholar and um had never really watched any tennis before we met but uh at a tournament in Austria a couple of years back, she wrote a poem about the, uh, the soteriology of tennis and, and witnessing tennis as sort of a a chapel of a, of a sort with, you know, the, the umpire is the, is the preacher and, you know, out in or that sort of thing. And the, and the crowd are the the people in the, in the pews sort of with their heads just going where they're told to be going. And uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, But in answering your question I I really do think there is beauty at the top of sport and I'm definitely biased in this but I mean I think that anyone when they watch Roger Federer dancing around a court with absolute control over every part of his body and and even more the thing that I think takes it from being uh, sport into some other stratosphere is not only is it absolute control over his body it's absolute control in these split-second reactions you know it's 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 not a it's not a rehearsed thing it's poetry and flow reacting to these external circumstances that are constantly changing and reacting at a speed that literally is beyond the mind but somehow it's done and when you see an absolute master like Federer you you could watch him without watching the opponent and you know watch it in the same way as you'd watch a ballet dancer at least that's that's my opinion and you know I I think the same thing when I watch Lionel Messi with the football you know the, the guy is just at one with everything around him um, and I think there are perhaps sort of one in a generation examples of that but I think they do exist in every sport
2: yeah that's that's such a great answer and I really love that that point you made about your your wife's writing about tennis as as this kind of chaplain, it kind of made me think as well you know this this feeling that that fans have when they're like in a stadium or in a crowd there's kind of like this this element of like transcending kind of collectiveness to it and yeah it, it like it reminds me I guess a lot of like what mass is like in in church you know there's kind of like collective bonding and, and singing together and losing this kind of sense of self within it as well it, it really is right this this kind of like religious yeah. ex- experience exactly and
1: and I actually I was struck by this because the the other day I was just watching a few tennis highlights and uh you know, most of the people in a stadium when they're watching a tennis match are not diehard ex-player fans. You know, they're in the stadium because they want to watch high-quality tennis, but they're not necessarily there because they're they're diehard uh, Nick Kyrgios fans or whatever. But if you see an incredible rally and you see the final shot being hit, everyone is reacting spontaneously and outwardly and gregariously. You know, everyone's on their feet, like, gasping and, and screaming and that it's sort of out of your control. It's like the crowd just picks everyone up and, and there's this energy that, and electricity that happens that it's sort of, yeah, yeah it's, it's hard to explain and hard to describe. But I, I really do think that's one of the beauties of sport and, you know, live music and those sorts of things is that everyone gets on this wavelength and it can, it can absolutely lift you even if you don't really want to be lifted.
0: Yeah. And again, like this kind of collective experience where you're just sharing these feelings with like hundreds of other people in the absence of these kind of like big religious events, it's not really like socially acceptable anywhere in life, except from, as you said, um, live music on one hand and live sport on the other. And it's like so important then that these things just stay there because they're like not only kind of interesting in their own respects, but they're just performing this like social function, which you know things like religion kind of also do and maybe do to a lesser extent
1: yeah totally
0: yeah well okay on roughly these lines then let's um make another turn and talk a bit about philosophy um right now you're taking a a philosophy masters can you tell us a bit about why you've um, chosen to do that i mean presumably you're not planning on becoming a academic philosophy done anytime soon so something about your motivation for that would be interesting um and yeah something about what you're looking to to get out of it
1: yeah so my my wife has made it very clear that uh she's going to be the only dr daniel in the family so um <laughs> a doctorate of any sort is not on the cards for me in terms of what I want to get out of it, I, th- I think there were there were a few reasons that, that I started. One was pure interest. I mean, I do really enjoy reading philosophy. Uh, you know, it's I read philosophy books in my spare time, and I think the type of thinking that you do when you're studying philosophy, I, I just think that's valuable for life. I, I really do think it's been additive to my own life. Um, another reason why... I wanted to to do a master's in philosophy was I wanted to clarify my own thinking around concepts like effective altruism and around something like high impact athletes so that I could speak eloquently and articulately about the, the ethical and the philosophical reasons why I do what I do and why I want people to join me. And then another aspect of it was also, you know, I, as a vegetarian, I've spent A lot of time banging my head against the wall speaking to people who are interested in vegetarianism but don't change their behaviors even if they agree with the arguments so i think part of it was was also how can i be more articulate about uh you know vegetarianism or any other ethical position that i think is worthwhile and valid and i would enjoy seeing people pick up on um you know, I, I do I do enjoy it and I am hoping that in some way it will contribute to the success of HIA.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, great answer. And you mentioned two things there. One is just doing philosophy because um, it can be useful as a kind of guide for living, some of it anyway. Um, and Another reason was because of the ideas themselves, it's useful to have a better grip on them if you want to explain them to other people. And also they're just intrinsically interesting, a lot of them. And I think it'd be great to just to, like dig into both of those things. So f- first question then is, um, and it, this can be like way beyond EA if you want, but like are there any kind of topics or philosophers or ideas that you hadn't come across before, which um, you've been learning about now, which like really stood out as kind of something like super interesting that you'd wished you'd you'd encountered earlier?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, a life-changing read for me was Animal Liberation by Peter Singer Um, and I do wish that I'd come across that a little earlier because I think he is just such a compelling writer and logician yeah so I I wish I'd come across that book uh, a little earlier uh, because I think I would have been convinced about vegetarianism earlier uh, and I I think that just would have been a good thing Uh, but the I would say the the philosophy or the school of philosophy that's been the most practically useful for me in my life is stoicism. Uh, And I mean, it is, it has absolutely taken off in popularity in the sporting world. Uh, Especially I think in NFL, Uh, there's a sort of a, a modern writer, a guy called Ryan Holiday, who's, who's written a couple of sort of pop stoicism books. And I think they, they really did the rounds in NFL and, i i just really love the idea of embracing hardship uh the idea of a sphere of control of uh you know not wasting energy on things that you cannot control and you know these aren't ideas that are are uh only found in stoicism i mean in buddhism you find the idea of the second arrow which is essentially the same thing where you know uh if, you, if an arrow is flying at you, don't worry about the arrow hitting you because that's just another bit of pain that you're going to experience. And, it, you know, stoicism at its heart, I think, is essentially the same thing, that uh, things are going to happen, that some of them are going to be out of your control, and there's no point in worrying about them. And, you know, death being one of those things, death is going to happen. Uh, it's out of your control. So there's no point in fretting about it. And those sorts of ideas, especially when you're sort of picking yourself up after tough losses on the tennis tour, I think are... Particularly useful.
2: Let's um let's move to our final two questions which we ask all of our guests. And the first one is what is a recent thing you have changed your mind about and why? I think I'm
1: gonna do a little dance with the word recent here. Uh but I think that the biggest the biggest mind change I've had in my life was going from being a meat eater to being a vegetarian. Uh, and we did elucidate those reasons earlier on but basically the the ethical dissonance of it struck me to begin with and then the more reading I did the more uh, I realized that there was a really strong environmental argument for not eating meat as well so that's that's probably been the biggest thing
2: yeah yeah and um our last question is what are three books or articles or other bits of media that you would recommend to anyone who kind of wants to find out more about uh, everything we just talked about here
1: I think, yeah, two of them I think I've, I've mentioned already. Uh, so one is Animal Liberation by Peter Singer. I think that's just an incredibly well-written book. Uh, very compelling. Another is 80,000 Hours, the website. Uh, again, incredibly compelling and I think useful for anyone who goes and checks it out, like regardless of what what career you're in or what stage of your career you're in. Uh, and then, just for one out of left field... Uh, a combination i'm cheating here a combination of meditations by marcus Aurelius and the letters to lucilius by or lucilius by seneca the younger um a good mosh of them is is a a great introduction to stoicism
0: uh, last question then is where can people find you and find high impact athletes online
1: Okay, so yeah, High Impact Athletes is highimpactathletes.org. Uh, you can find me at my name, Marcus Daniel. I, I have no idea what my usernames are, but I was pretty consciously off social media for a lot of the last few years. But now that I'm sort of making a push with HIA, I'm trying to you know have more of a presence and, and um, be more active. So yeah, I think you'll find me floating around on all the socials from time to time as well.
2: And uh, I guess as well, if you're active on the EA forum, that seems like a a great way to kind of get in touch or maybe uh, give some thoughts or or share advice um, to kind of help out, even if you're you're not a professional athlete.
1: Yes, please do. I mean, I I really welcome all of the challenges uh, that are presented on EA forums. Uh, I think the EA community is amazing at being challenging, but doing it in a constructive way. Anyone who's interested in what we're doing, I'm really happy to speak about it. Uh, Also, anyone who's an incredible director of operations, feel free to reach out.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Marcus Daniel, thank you very much.
1: Thank you guys so much. This was a really interesting chat. Really enjoyed it.
0: That was Marcus Daniel on high-impact athletes, EA outreach, and the point of sport. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes, forward slash Marcus. That's M-A-R-C-U-S. There you'll find more info about the key ideas of the interview, plus some links to relevant books and articles. As always, it would be great if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. If you have any feedback, there is a new star rating form at the top and bottom of each write-up, with a space to write any comments, Uh, And you can also send suggestions, questions, and hate mail to feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, if you'd like to support the show more directly and help us to continue to pay for hosting, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.